you have your Bibles, please open them to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Just a reminder, and I think it's maybe helpful, uh, hopefully most of you kind of understand and appreciate, but I think sometimes in a church it's good to remind yourself of commitments. You know, Scripture is written in such a way that its meaning flows not merely from the immediate words said, but from its surrounding context. One of the reasons that's essential, I think, to understand is because in preaching, oftentimes you'll find pastors or preachers will cobble together from all over um, words of similarity or verses that seem to prove a theme or a point. I think when you do that too often, you can really miss the broader themes and the settings. And so maybe I could say each text is a diamond in its own right, but when set in its surrounding context like a well-set piece of jewelry, the gold and the setting and the other gems around it enhance its beauty. It's one of the reasons we're committed as a church to preaching through um, frequently sequential texts, whereas we preach uh, a text, the next text, the next text after that, the following texts. And generally speaking, that means we preach through books. So we are on series, or sermon two, of Exodus. So, in the infamous words of many, buckle up. But hopefully it will be enjoyable as we go through a series. I just wanted to explain that. And So if sometimes you um, are joining us newly, you could always go back online and listen to some of the previous sermons so that you can um, catch up and understand the flow and the context. So let me bring you up to speed with where we're at this morning. And we'll be reading verses 15 through the end of the text in just a moment, or through the end of uh, chapter 1. Israel has uh, moved to Egypt some 300 plus years before with Jacob being the patriarch still alive at that point and Joseph being kind of the embedded um, powerhouse and financial security for Israel. 300 years later, as we view Israel, they've now become a populous nation that someone integrated into Egypt, living there, um, working hard. And chapter 1 begins where the Pharaoh all of a sudden goes, uh-oh, we have a crowd of people that is rising in power and population. They could be a threat. And so after about 300 years of living peacefully in the land of Egypt, probably there's been some dynasty changeover. This new Pharaoh says, Israel's a threat We need to nip it in the bud before it becomes a real danger. And so he begins an oppressive slavery campaign where through that that tendency to overwork, to deploy the men to tasks that don't build their households, Pharaoh is hoping to press the nation into a much weaker, less populated place so that Egypt is secure. And one of the, the broader theological themes I, I think is very clear in that text is that you begin to see Israel, who are God's people, and you begin to see Egypt becoming God's enemy. I think that's significant for the next several chapters, that we would recognize that Egypt is not merely a nation at this point. Pharaoh has turned his fist to heaven. He is shaking a war spirit God saying, bring it on. I think if you frame it that way, it really helps you understand the next several passages 
where by chapter 4, God says, I am going to destroy Pharaoh's firstborn son because the way he's been treating Israel, which then God does. He takes away Pharaoh's firstborn son. I think those are significant elements because if we see Pharaoh as just a savvy ruler, rather than fulfilling the dynasty of the offspring of Satan. Okay, so go back. Garden of Eden, they get removed from the Garden of Eden, and Cain kills Abel, and seems to show us kind of the, the, the offspring of the serpent. You say, well, where are you seeing that? Come to John 8, and Jesus tells the Pharisees, you are like your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. Well, when, when is the first murder happening? It's Cain. But he's looking at the Pharisees and saying, you're just like your father, the devil. Your father was the murderer. So when Cain murders his brother, he's actually showing us that when the serpent fooled Eve and caused Adam to rebel, there is now this kind of lineage of hostility, as Genesis 3.15 says, your offspring will be hostile to the woman's offspring, and he will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. So then we come into Egypt, and you see that, that kind of hostility rise up in Pharaoh where he puts on the team jersey of the serpent, and he begins to attack God's people and put himself in hostility against it. So then you come into the passage where he's trying to oppress and subdue Israel through slavery, and guess what? He's losing. And so he's going to reposition his strategy. So when you read verses 8 through 14, Pharaoh comes, as, uh, comes up with this strategy. In fact, let me just kind of highlight some themes for you. Look at verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and war breaks out. And they join their enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Okay, so he's worried about his military power and he's worried about keeping Israel captive. So, so he then oppresses them. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters to afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more Israel multiplied. It's not working, right? Like he's put himself against God and he's put himself against God's people, and God is blessing them in the middle of harsh oppression. Then we come to verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. I don't know if you caught that. We're on like scene two. Scene one, Pharaoh oppresses them with slavery, and what happens? They grow. They multiply. 
And now because of the oppression, they're spreading throughout all of Egypt. They're going to conquer the whole land if he keeps this up. So he's like, I need to change my strategy. So now we're just going to kill the boys. And so he sets forth on this strategy. And now the commentary of Scripture says this. As he's pursuing the strategy of infanticide, killing these boys as they're born, verse 21 they multiplied, excuse me, verse 20, they multiplied and grew very strong. Scene 3, verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. So now he recruits the whole nation of Egypt. Kill the boys. I'm sure, and we don't need to get into this this morning, I'm sure there are overtones here that because it's the son of the woman, who is to be born, who is this son of promise. I mean, if you can't see reflections here with Herod killing all the boys in in Bethlehem when Jesus is born, Satan has put a target on the offspring of Eve to kill these boys. It's tragic. It's evil. I just did a little bit of uh, canoodling and trying to figure out how other guys have handled this text. I saw quite a few sermons on abortion from this text. I don't think that's the point of the text. Although, I think you can make that point from the text. That it is wicked and it is to align yourself with Satan to be engaged in abortion. And that's really what's going on here. The the picture is these women who are midwives are called in. And again, just, just noting the text from verse 15 and following. The king of Egypt, you might notice at this point that he's not named. He's never named. This is the book of, no, the book of names. Exodus is, I think the Septuagint is the one that started that title, but the very first lines are how the book has been named in Hebrew. These are the names. This is the book of names. So we jump in and immediately Israel's named. All the tribes are named because of their patriarchs. We're naming everybody. We come to chapter, or verse 15. We named the midwives. Pua. And Shifra, I mean, so if any of you are struggling, you got a baby and you're, you're like, what should we name her? I'm going with Pua. I mean, that, I'm sure she'll never be made fun of. They're named. God does not even dignify the king of Egypt with a name. He gets no honor in this book. We name Moses by the end of chapter 2, or the middle of chapter 2, Moses' children are named when we come to chapter 4. Pharaoh has no name. God's making a point. He's, he is not honoring Pharaoh. In fact, as you look at this text, you see Pharaoh, the most mighty man in the world at this point probably, is undone by two midwives. two women. It's interesting to note that he's trying to kill the men because they're so dangerous and he's got two women who defeat him. So you look at the text here and again we're just tracing down through verse 16. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, that's probably a veiled reference to seeing whether they're a boy or girl. Not actually, the, the word birth stool is not in the Hebrew. If it is a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. Look at verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded. They directly disobey the Pharaoh. They disobey him. 
As we're considering this text, I want to suggest to you some practical implications from it, and that's kind of the framing of my outline. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with this just kind of question that I want you to consider. If you're Pua and Shifra, what do you do? Pharaoh invites you into his royal courtroom there, and he says, hey, listen, I want this to go on. I think we can assume a few things from just inference. If the king of Egypt is willing to murder a whole bunch of innocent babies, if you don't do what he says, what do you think is going to happen to you? I mean, do you think of the moral repugnance of killing boys merely because they're Israeli and boys? He will have no prick of conscience to slaughter the midwives throughout Israel. You know your life is on the line. And I would assume, like any strong ruler, he is not merely using the stick of threat, but probably the carrot of bribe. That is, I will kill you if you don't do what I say, and you will be well rewarded if you do what I say. There is a ton of pressure on you in this moment as you stand in the king of Egypt's courtroom. So here you're given this task, and my guess is that these ladies are, in fact, probably over the midwives. It seems impossible that these two ladies are able to handle the births of a nation. That'd be a very busy week and year and life. My guess is that these are representatives that have influence and sway in managing the whole of Israel's community in terms of the birth, birthing and the midwives. They determine not to do what the king of Pharaoh says. So how do you get to the place where you are put in a position like this and you have an unwavering conviction at the risk of life and the loss of property to do right? Where do, you, where do you get that type of conviction from? It can't be borrowed, right? Like, it's not, probably not enough to say, like, well, hey, so, like, my dad loved God, so I probably shouldn't do this, and I might die, but whatever. Like, that's not going to work. Like, you're not going to be able to just borrow parental convictions. You're, you're not going to be able to borrow the convictions of your community. When your life is on the line saying, well, hey, everyone else believes in God, and I don't think this is probably the right thing to do, so I'm not going to do it. I guarantee you that if that's how they go into this moment, they kill babies. So how do you get to the place where like Shifra and Pua, you are facing the loss of life and maybe much more, maybe your whole family is put in jeopardy by your righteous actions and you with determination do right. When you talk about like, the, the moral strength to go into Pharaoh after probably years of subverting his command. And he's like, hey, I'm seeing little toddler boys. And I gave that command eight years ago. How come I'm seeing all these little Israeli boys around playing stickball? Why is that happening? Well, Hebrew women give birth faster. How do you get to the place where you know you go in, you tell Pharaoh that, and Pharaoh looks at you cross-eyed, you're dead? How do you get that conviction? Maybe I could just suggest for you and me, I, I, 
I don't imagine I will be facing a gun or commit abortion option in my life. But man, sometimes obedience is really hard. Sometimes it's hard to respond graciously to obnoxious neighbors, annoying children. I mean, we don't have any, but some of you have heard might. (laughs) How do you respond graciously to financial stress? How do you, how do you, with diligent sacrifice time, because you know it pleased the Lord, when you are exhausted and you feel like you're worn thin, what produces that conviction? I think we look at a text, text like this. It's given for our sakes. It's given that we might, too, worship God no matter what it costs in moments like this. In moments that, by analogy, share that same stress to press us. So let's just begin with, a, I think, a basic presumption you should enter in a text like this is God permits evil. God permits evil. Israel is in this place of massive pressure. God is not up in heaven saying, oh boy, I did not see that coming. That was a turn. I did. I mean, you, we've watched movies like that, right? Where all of a sudden it's like, man, I never knew that was going to happen. God has never been surprised. In fact, I think, I think when you look carefully at all of Scripture, Psalm 105.25 says, God caused them, speaking of Egypt, to hate Israel. Let me just read that text for you. He turned their hearts to hate his people. So not only is God permitting this, God is saying this is actually in his plan. So there are times where we feel as though we are in this massive pressure chamber where we are put in a place where failure seems inevitable and God is not merely unaware or surprised he is actually present and permitting it to happen I think we have to recognize that or we infer our God is incompetent or ignorant So if we start with that premise, these ladies are put into a position in which both they and we should consider God knows and is permitting this to happen to me. I don't know what you're going through. Cancers, difficulty with children like I mentioned. Maybe your job is asking so much of you, you can't possibly be a good dad and keep your career and you're filled with anxiety because you know you need to change something and it's going to cost you significantly. Maybe you're in a place where you just don't know what to do. Your life is at a place where you can't be the answer. Your husband is stressed out. He doesn't know what to do and he's looking at you for support and you don't know what to do. God permits evil. It is not out of his control. It has not come into your life by accident. It does not surprise him. It has not overwhelmed him. It does not cause him nervousness. He is not looking at you going, man, I wonder what they should do. He knows exactly what he is doing, and in his goodness, he permits evil. 
And so just to press the point a little further, God allows evil to happen. Let me read this verse again from Psalm 105. He turned their hearts to hate them. To deal craftily with his servants. God is able to permit evil in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor cheering it on. But he is in full control of this moment for Shifran Pua. He is in full control of this moment and what it means for the nation of Israel. In fact, if I were to read the verse preceding the one I read, it says, And the Lord made his people to be very fruitful. And he made them stronger than their foes. And he turned Egypt's hearts to hate them. So God is doing good to Israel. He's strengthening them. He's growing them strong. They are now mightier, according to Psalm 105, than their foes. And God turns Egypt against them. And I think by this, uh, we would have to do more unpacking than time will permit. But we have the same theological concern with Pharaoh. In a few chapters, we're going to hit this text where God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So tuck that away. We're going to come to that answer later. Um, so I realize some of you are like, no, now, please. <laughs> we don't have time now. God permits evil. He neither tempts us with evil, James 1, nor does he encourage us to do evil. He is not the author of evil. He has never acted with evil. And yet, he permits it. This is the clear testimony of Scripture, and I think when we come to this text, this helps us. I would say the second concern that we have is that these ladies clearly have a motivation that we need to embrace. I want you to come down with me into verse 17. But the midwives, what? They feared God. The midwives fear God. Now, you're in the, the position of power. I mean, let's, we can call it a palace, right? So we got this palace of power with a pharaoh, right? Threatening to kill these ladies in all likelihood. And they walk out not afraid of pharaoh and his power, but afraid of whom? They have a fear of God in them. Look at the text again. It says in verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do. Right, so, so motivation led to action. And I think sometimes in our Christian life, we can really mess this one up because we like to be doers, but sometimes our hearts are miles away from God. They feared God, and I think the contrast is instead of Pharaoh, and did not obey Pharaoh. They did not do as he had commanded. So God's pleasure kind of my euphemism for what it means to fear the Lord. God's pleasure must be our purpose. We're going to talk about like why you do what you do, your purpose for doing what you do. Here's the answer. God's joy and pleasure and satisfaction in you must be your motive. I think oftentimes we, we get off in life. We lose our way. We lose our compass. We lose the why. And here's the why. Because God's joy is the greatest thing in my life to live for. 
That is what has got to center us. So we come into situations in life where our joy is threatened and we have a tendency to make ourselves God and say, no, 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 this is not making me happy. I'm going to renegotiate this moment to make me have joy. And we've lost our purpose. I should say our righteous purpose. We replaced it with idolatry. God's joy, not your joy, has got to be the center of your motivation. I do think it's, it's helpful for us to recognize the fear of the Lord here as a compelling theme for these two ladies. Do you recall in Proverbs 9, we talked about it briefly a few weeks ago, that the beginning of wisdom is what? I mean, the, I'm turning the phrase around, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, Psalm 110 says the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here, the king of Egypt, verse 10, says, I am going to act with wisdom towards Israel. And then what does he do? He attacks God's people and murders babies. Is that someone living in the fear of the Lord? It's not. And I think that's the contrast Moses is building for us. Here a king says, I'm going to deal with wisdom with these people. And because he has no fear of the Lord in him, because he doesn't care about the Lord's pleasure, but he cares about his power, he has no wisdom, even though he says he has wisdom. And we have two simple ladies. I mean, I imagine the educational gap between these two is massive. Pharaoh versus these two women. The power gap could not be bigger. They are midwives. They help ladies give birth. He is the king of one of the most powerful, if not the powerful nation in the world at this moment. And he's acting with foolishness, calling it wisdom. And they're walking in wisdom simply because they fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It leads them to a heart posture that devotes itself to pleasing God regardless of risk and personal consequence. A deep concern for the Lord's pleasure, for the Lord's will to be done rather than their own. Look again in verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded, but let the male children live. Now, verse 18, I, I have got to believe that time has passed. That in order for there to be evidence, again, we're talking about probably millions of people. So for these midwives to, to manage the, the midwifery of Israel to the place where, where, generally speaking, they're thwarting the power of Egypt. For the king to get wind of this and say, there is still a solid population of boys and to call these ladies for account is probably not, you know, he commands it on Monday. Next Monday, he calls them in and says, hey, you're not doing it. We're probably talking about years. And comes in and he says, hey, you have not done what you said you would do. What do they say? So this brings us to another challenge of this text. Do they lie? Right? Verse 18, why have you done this? Verse 19, the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. So let's just deal with what the text says and then deal with a possible lie. The text doesn't tell us they lied. 
It could be that the Lord who is prospering them has actually given the Israelite women quick, healthy, hearty births. That could be, uh, I mean, they might be telling the truth. Right? Like, God is causing them to grow, have families, to be strong. And so maybe they're just like, hey, we don't know what's happening either, but this is crazy. Labors are averaging five minutes. It could be, I mean, the, the text is clear. They did not obey. Right? So, so they chose to reject the call to kill babies. So, so they're diverting attention, saying it's not our fault. Scripture says, yes, it is. You've done right and righteously. But they are, they are diverting Pharaoh. So it could be that rather than lying, there's a little bit of misdirection, a little bit of sleight of hand, that they've let all the people of Israel know, like, hey, would you go into labor? Wait for about 15 hours and give us a call. We'll come by, the baby will be healthy, be born, and we'll make sure the baby's safe. Or maybe don't call a unionized midwife. Just, you know, call the neighborhood expert. When the professional shows up, we'll certify, good birth, healthy baby, and then we'll move on. It could be something like this, where they have, they have deliberately and strategically protected the little boys. And then when they're asked by Pharaoh, they're like, hey, the babies are born, we get there. We, you know, we don't, maybe they're just better women in Israel, right? Like, like maybe there's a diversion without total straight-up dishonesty, or it could be flat out a lie. Like, yeah, oh, this is a brand-new baby boy we just delivered. Here you go, Mom. We're done here. And they're not killing the baby boys. I, I think we want to be careful. The text doesn't say they lied. So, so I don't think necessarily we should say they lied. However, if they have lied, how are we to consider this? This is a question that I think arises again because in a few chapters, Moses is going to tell Pharaoh, hey, we want to go a three days journey and worship. Right? Is that what Israel really wants? Hey, we just want a camping trip where we worship God and get in touch with our creator? Is that, is that what Moses really wants, or is he kind of misleading Pharaoh? So we, I think we have to deal with this tension a little bit. What is, what is morally right in this moment where you have a, a leader who wants to murder babies, and then he holds you to account for it? What should these ladies, what should they have done? Well, let me just start by telling you that this text actually tells us what they did was right. Doesn't it? What motivated them? The fear of the Lord. So we know they have a right heart. And I would assume since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that they didn't just have sincerity, they actually did it right. Because wisdom is the right application. It's the right doing. And so I would assume that the text, by clearly pointing out twice that they feared the Lord, is actually telling us we should approve of everything they did in this text about this. Not only that, if you're unsure, look in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. So we have not only the, the commentary of Scripture, they feared the Lord, but we have the approval of God in blessing them. He treated them well. So God rewards them for this. I think we can all agree that no matter what exactly they said to Pharaoh, whether it be lie or misdirection, that what they did was very much in line with God's pleasure and will. 
So if we're presuming a lie, and again, I don't think this is a hard thing for us to presume and still recognize the goodness in it. I want you to remember that Pharaoh has set himself up against, an, as, uh, up against God as his enemy. So in a few chapters, God is going to kill the firstborn. Like you know this is a war. What happens to the army of Egypt? Right? They get killed. When we go to the battle of Jericho, God has Israel kill all the inhabitants. If you want maybe some honesty in terms of real life, in the battle of Ai, they act like they're retreating and then send troops around the backside to conquer the city. Is that dishonesty? We're retreating, oh no. When they're actually not retreating? Well, let me ask you, in another type of setting entirely, is a pump fake lying in basketball? So we recognize context matters. So here's the context. God is at war with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is at war with God. As such, he has forfeited his right to life. He has forfeited his right to demand the truth in order to do evil. Just like in battle, if you have a sword and you're going for a guy and you fake a cut so he defends the wrong spot and then you stab him, You've misled him in order to stab him. That's, I guess, dishonesty. But if you're in a righteous war, it's righteous. Just like espionage when God sends 12 spies in. I just want you to imagine what that would look like if they couldn't lie. God sent these 12 spies into the land of Canaan to spy out the land so that they can come and conquer and kill people. Can you imagine those 12 spies if they had to tell the truth? Hey, you 12 travelers, where are you from? Ta, they asked. Like, what? Like, like how is this going to work out? They're spies. But I, I think we lose the context here. This is entirely different than a dad saying to his son, did you clean your room? Like, you are not in a holy war in that moment in that sense. Right? That son better tell his dad the truth. He is called by God to honor and obey his dad. In this case, Pharaoh has forfeited life by raising his fist to God, assaulting and killing all the male children he can. And he has put himself in a position where these ladies have an obligation not to aid and abet him in the crime of murder. Clarity comes from the fear of the Lord. I think oftentimes when we have these, I always like having these discussions with kids because the first things they ask are things like, so can I lie to my brother when he's being a jerk? No. Again, not the same context at all. But when you're walking in the fear of the Lord and you're living for his pleasure, when people who are enemies of the cross of Christ, enemies of their creator, trying to destroy the work of God, we dare not aid them by some type of cardboard stiff cutout of morality. I hope that helps a little bit because Rahab lies. Obviously, the spies lie, although we don't hear about their lies. 
And so sometimes that's a moral question that comes up again and again. So again, I go back to motive here. These ladies were driven by a fear of the Lord. And they had a good, they, they captured the essence of the moment. Pharaoh's trying to murder babies. We will not assist him in this. And even the self-preservation in the moment, perhaps, but also the reality that if they successfully bamboozle Pharaoh in this moment, they can continue whatever is working, whether it's a charade or a lie or whether or not these women are just more hardy. Right? Like, they can continue saving babies if they can keep Pharaoh in the dark. It's not merely about self-preservation. It is about walking in the fear of the Lord and continually serving his people by caring for them. Having said all of that, I think it leads to our next concern, and that is these ladies in this text are highlighted and rewarded. I don't think that's insignificant. So, so flowing in, God permits evil so that our motives can both be purified and exposed. Right? Like, like here's my outline, actually. God permits evil. Remember the next point? It's always disappointing when you ask people like three days later, hey, do you remember the sermon? They're like, Ugh. I think it's worse when I ask you if you just remember the point I just finished. Okay, God permits evil. God's pleasure must be our purpose. Like our motives and our purpose for why we do is God's pleasure. They feared the Lord at risk of their own life. Finally, God's reward must be our hope. God's reward must be our hope. Um, when you look in this text, you see in verse 20, God dealt well with these women. And the people, that is Israel, grew strong. They multiplied. Verse 20, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them what? Families. I don't know if it was cultural in those days, but perhaps these women were barren, or perhaps they were, were just single, older ladies, who had devoted themselves to helping other families grow and, and didn't have families of their own. Whatever the case. It seems as though God especially intervenes to enrich their lives in ways that are deeply satisfying for them. So, theologically, I look at a text like that, and these verses are in the Bible for us. And here's my point. This is not significant to the advance of Israel. Not these ladies getting families. That's not important. It's not as though... God is putting this in there for no reason, nor is it significant to the national development of the people. Why does God put this in Scripture then? Is it not to teach us that not only does he permit evil, but that when people live in the fear of the Lord and obey him, he is there to protect, to care for, to bless? Did these ladies have the potential to get killed? Yes. Instead, God protected them and dealt well with them and then gave them families. So let me just suggest to you, because I think there's this nervous tension about various things. I mean, for instance, like every once in a while I preach on the fear of the Lord, and when I do, I'll get this kind of occasional concern that the fear of the Lord is not a New Testament concern, which is just not true because the Bible tells us in the New Testament to fear the Lord. In 1 Peter, in Hebrews, and 1 Corinthians, we're told to fear, to fear Christ, to fear God, to fear our, our Lord, said in different ways. 
Well, we come to this text, and I, I find this kind of nervous anxiety about Christians of living for the reward, as though to do so is to, to somehow inject a self-serving um, pollutant into a pure heart of just loving God for God's worth. Does that make sense? Do you think that's a concern you should have? Uh, perhaps. I, I, don't, I don't know that many of us struggle with this, but just to deal with a theological concern. Is it right to serve God for the reward? I, I'm not trying to trip you up. I just think that's a real question you should ask. So Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For without faith, we cannot please God. We must believe what instead? That he is a rewarder. Thank you for getting that right. Almost every modern translation says he rewards. That's actually not what it says. The idea is that he's a paymaster, that he, he responds intrinsically out of his character to respond to righteous behavior with blessings, with rewards. That's who he is. We must believe that that is his character. And that strengthens our resolve. Romans 2 says God will repay everyone. And that sounds terrifying, and it is to the person who's not in Christ. But those in Christ have had all of their wrongs taken care of at the cross. So when I come before God, the righteous and just judge, I do not fear his justice. When God accounts for all of my iniquities, there will be none. Because they've been accounted for already in Christ. Whereas Colossians says, they have been taken out of the way and have been nailed to the cross. The believer is then left with this happy prospect. When I stand before the righteous judge on the negative, the detriments, the criminal, the wicked side of my accounting list, there will be nothing except maybe the stamp paid in full, signed by Christ. We go to the side of activity, of deeds, and anything and everything that's on the side of, of those behaviors done out of love and affection for our Lord, energized by faith in Him, are going to be forever granted to the benefit of those who have something in that list. This is the promise of Scripture in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear. All of us appear, which is terrifying. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it be good or evil. Notice the good in there? I mean, it really, like, our hearts of fear hit the evil one hard, don't they? But again, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, and he has granted you eternal forgiveness. What evil is there left on your account that has not been paid for? The declaration of scripture is there is none. There is no sin remaining for the believer. But there will be good. Jesus says it simply this way in responding to Peter. So Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Jesus says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will um, also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
In other words, God is clear throughout the text of the New Testament that those who serve him receive abundant rewards that far outweigh the cost of service. This is why when Hebrews says we must believe that he's a rewarder, that actually energizes our faith. When you follow the rest of the text in Hebrews, he is making a point that these died in faith without receiving those things promised. So have they lost anything? No. And it works as a counterbalance to these, these uh, precious midwives. In their life, they receive some blessings. Do you think that's all they'll receive? I think certainly not. But what would have happened if Pharaoh would have hacked their heads off? Was what they did still worth it? Absolutely. Because maybe you could say like Jesus in Hebrews, it says he despised the shame. That means he didn't consider the shame something overwhelmingly expensive when compared to what? The joy that was set before him. He's talking about the joy in eternity. The joy of what happened in response by the Father to his work on the cross. So what motivated Christ was, in fact, confidence that his Father is a rewarder. So it's not just, I fear God in a sense of terrifying fear. It's that I fear him, so I am pursuing his pleasure. I'm pursuing his approval. I'm pursuing those things that please him. That's my motive. But what strengthens that resolve is that when I live this way, there is an eternal and irrevocable reward for all those who love his appearing. All of us who serve him. So in those hard moments, what gives conviction to these ladies is the same thing that gives us conviction. I think it's why it's scribed in Scripture for us, God dealt well. And when he welcomes you into his kingdom, I hope you hear the, her, the words, well done. Because when you hear those words, he will do you well. And those rewards seem to stick forever. Can I just encourage you, church family, that when we look at a text like this, we see how God ministers grace to a nation and it should make us all a little bit jealous. I, I would not want to speculate if we randomly pick two people from the audience to be our midwives. Would you have the courage, the conviction, the clarity to fear the Lord and hope in his blessing? Even if in this life you die, do you have the resolve to choose to fear the Lord when it's easier to live for today? Do you have the hope that when Jesus calls you home, whether it's through a natural death, through a surprising death, or the return of his son, do you have the resolve that you will live for the reward then as opposed to today's hope of happiness for just a moment? The hope of maybe for these ladies, just another breath. I, I don't want you to miss God is the hero and he helps his people 
through two faithful ladies. And as we look at those faithful ladies, maybe we should ask this question. How do we get conviction so that God could use us like them? Like, moms, don't you want to be used by God? Don't you want to see your children like receive just the richest grace that could come through you? Be a woman who fears the Lord and hopes in the joy of heaven. Hopes in the God who is a rewarder. Some of you at work are praying that God would use you to be a witness. Fear the Lord. Hope in his rewards. Some of you are wondering how to lead a home well because there's challenges that seem overwhelming. Fear the Lord. Hope in heaven. God has never, ever failed to give people the righteous reward they deserve. He will repay every man according to his good or evil. And for those of you in this room, I hope for all of you that doesn't terrify you. So let me speak really honestly to those of you who it should terrify. Turn to Jesus. If on that great judgment day, when we look at those lists, and I mean we kind of loosely here, if on that list we would see those crimes against God, and that list does not have paid in full by Christ, then until it's paid in full, you will be burning in hell. And because you are not infinite, that means your time of sentence in God's torture chamber called hell will be infinite. Because your crimes are against an infinitely precious creator. And so the time will be infinite. There will be no escape. Or you can trust in Christ Jesus, who as the Son of God offers infinite atonement to any person who trusts in Jesus. You can never pay that. That's why you'll never be released. But Christ, because he's the son of God, has paid a price you can never pay if you turn from your sin and trust and ask him for forgiveness. Do that. And then the hope of heaven's reward, the judgment seat where Christ gives you according to your deserts, that will not scare you. Maybe I should say better. Should not scare you. In moments of faithlessness or weakness, maybe it does cause a little, bit of, a little bit of cold sweat to break out. And I'm sure when we see the sun and glory unveiled, all of us will be on our faces in fear and worship and love. But you know justice has been paid for. Christ purchased it at Calvary and you have been redeemed from the cost. Trust in Christ. I hope this text gives you courage. Look at what God is doing. Through two probably uneducated, faithful women who fear the Lord, he saves a nation. He doesn't just save a nation, he grows a nation. He makes it strong, so much so that Psalm says it's stronger than its foes. God grants to these two precious ladies, I don't know if it's marriage and children or just children from barren wombs, but he grants these ladies a sweetness in this life. Their names are forever inscribed in God's eternal word. Pharaoh is still nameless. 
they will receive glory in heaven forever. Please, cultivate courage by fearing the Lord and hoping in the joys of heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would strengthen our hearts. Life is so distracting that we can walk out of this room committed to fearing you and immediately drop into selfishness or pettiness with our families. We can enter into workplaces tomorrow and forget that we want to live for you and we will immediately begin living for ourselves, acting in such a way as to promote our own self-interests. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember and walk daily in the fear of the Lord that we might consider what would please you. We would be very careful not to dishonor you or to um, anger you, but in fact, we would obey your commands out of a humble and reverential love for you. Father, I also pray for those in this room who, who aren't trusting in Jesus Christ, who have never turned to him in salvation and trusted and believed and repented. Lord, there is reconciliation into your presence. There is restoration to a sweet fellowship with you if they would but turn to Jesus in faith. And so I ask that for those in this room who are are standing outside of your grace, that you would summon them into a righteous, forgiven relationship with you through the ministry of Christ as the Holy Spirit works in their hearts, that they might be saved. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the testimony of these two sweet ladies who with boldness faced down the most powerful man in the world because it was a boldness energized by a fear for you. Lord, we are jealous that you would strengthen us to have that same fear and that same courage and that same faith so that we might not only honor your name, but that we might look with expectation to heaven where you will reward those who are diligent to seek after you. Please do this in our church family. Strengthen us to serve and to please you, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.